Welcome. It's the Annex Wealth Management SWAT Podcast, Episode 67. Today, Monday, September 4th, Strengths, Weaknesses, Opportunities, and Threats. This is insight and perspective from members of the Annex Wealth Management Investment Committee. All-Star Superstar Spectacular today with Todd Voigt, Chief Investment Strategist. Welcome. Good morning, Danny. Jason Cooper, Research Analyst. Welcome to you. Hey, Danny. Thanks. Well, first of all, we'd like to thank all of our listeners uh, for coming back week after week. And if you like what you hear, please share it with a friend, colleague, family member, member or foreign relative. We really enjoy making these and, and you're listening. Uh, spreading the word means a lot to us and hope everybody's been having a good Labor Day weekend. Starting out, we always like to look ahead, and we are looking at Tuesday, Durable Goods Orders, Wednesday, ISM Services and Beige Book. Thursday, we got unit labor costs, jobless claims, and productivity. I like looking at productivity because it's really what grows the economy and improves our standard of living. And then Friday, we have consumer credit and rig counts uh, where we expect some weakness. The consumer credit number is going to be interesting because that's the the oil for the economic engine, and we're going to have a lot to say about that. So why don't we head right into strengths, and uh, one of the strengths I've got is that U.S. inflation's come in rather tame. PCE came in lower, but right on target. Yields are down just in the last week or so, but they've come in off of highs they last saw in October of 22. So 425, we used a benchmark 10-year yield as a, as a guide. But that reflects economic strength or economic growth, which is, would be considered a strength. And then another strength that we ha- we're not really seeing yet, but it's being forecasted pretty pretty well by a lot of the companies that we listen to is that you know you, you've heard about the Inflation Reduction Act, the Infrastructure Act, the CHIPS Act. Over in Europe, they have some stimulus acts as well. And even though we've heard about them, the dollars haven't actually hit the economy yet. And the open-ended nature or uncapped nature of the Inflation Reduction Act is really important. So we were on a call with a company last week, and they pointed out that last year, I think it was last uh, last June, they were highlighting that the IRA was projected to cost about $271 billion. But due to the uncapped nature of the expenditures, it's, it's risen to $663 billion as of uh, July of this year. So a massive increase in expenditures. Moreover, that fiscal stimulus hasn't hit the economy yet. These are just plans or projects that have effectively been approved that are in the pipeline and will probably start to hit the economy either sometime later this year or into 2024. So even if there is a slowdown elsewhere, we'll at least have pretty persistent demand with respect to infrastructure stimulus. Yeah. And uh, add on to that, the tie into client or you know people's portfolios is that you know you got the ancillary effects of improving corporate profits from the infrastructure spend across the economy and and should mean that you're going to have some decent uh, continued growth in the economy or at least a buffer if the rest of the economy's tanking and, and also from a jobs perspective i mean those construction yeah. jobs now they're very high paying and they tend to be cyclical. So when you take out the cyclical nature of that type of hiring and firing, that should decrease the economic sensitivity of an otherwise very cyclical industry. Yeah, another interesting uh, strength is retail sales have been a bit on the strong side, yet fundamentally, when you dig into the balance sheets, it's not looking too good. Margins are uh, compressed. You got a number of companies 
that are reporting worse than expected earnings or poor earnings because of shrinkage or, or higher wages or, or what it might be. But the um, yeah, retail sales on the top line has been relatively strong. We've seen, at least on a month-over-month basis, a real benefit at retailers like Amazon, where you have Prime Day. But when it comes to Dick's or Target, Dollar General, not only do you see maybe uh, less inclination of their customers to, to spend as much, but to your point, that increase in shrink is really pressuring margins coupled with higher labor costs. Right. So the, that really sque- squeezes the bottom line. Speaking of labor costs, and you know, I we keep talking about strengths. And, and, the, and the important point here is that everything we talk about from week to week is really to put the week to week type events and numbers into perspective of long-term investing. The labor market's been rather strong. Quit rates are down. Uh, Jolts index came out. What's interesting about that is while it's down six out of seven months, it came from a rather high 11, 12 million job openings. I said, you know, just off the cuff that, you know, I wouldn't be surprised to see it fall precipitously to six million. Well, it's at eight million projected to go down to seven million. But why it's a strength is that it puts the Fed on hold and not having to raise rates. And Brian Jacobson, I I borrow a phrase from him, he said, there's not a reason for the Fed to raise rates, not a reason for him to lower rates. And so it has that added stability. It has this stabilizing effect. So that, that would be considered a strength. Maybe time to take it to weaknesses? Yeah. So on the weakness side, I mean, we've got only so much time, but European growth is disappointing. Inflation reports recently out of Europe are greater than 5%. Here in the U.S., stocks for August, in fact, stocks across the whole international market environment, including the U.S., have been down in August. But, you know, kind of true to form, I've been a subscriber to Stock Traders Almanac since I was in college. And I always am cautious about averages because I always jokingly say when you talk about averages, it can be anything other than average because it's just an average. But they did say the market to be down in the beginning of August typically and seasonally would rise in the later part of August and then you roll right into September, which is typically weak. So we've seen weakness in shares. They've recovered in the last couple of weeks in the second half of August to finish the month basically down about a percent on the S&P and down 2-3% on the NASDAQ and the Russell 2000. Russell 2000 was down more, but from a trading perspective, and, and uh, we talk about this every week, uh, a lot of times during the week, when we look at trading, and, and small caps have been trading better. They look like they're ter- making a turn up in terms of money flows and momentum. So it's, that's actually l- leads me to believe September, while expected to be a typically weak month, might not be all that weak. And it depends on the backdrop of the market, just how weak September is. doesn't even have to be negative. You know, there's Septembers that are positive. Another area has been the consumer. And looking at the personal savings rate, that declined to 3.5% in July from 4.3% in October. We've also started to see delinquencies increase on loans. So credit cards, auto loans, uh, consumer loans, those are all, from a delinquency perspective, now higher than what we saw pre-COVID. In, in addition, you know, you, you have this potential weakening consumer, but it's now September. 
and it's time for student loans to begin to accrue interest again, they'll start to be billed and hopefully that uh, they'll be able to collect on the, the payments starting sometime in October. But there are a number of debtors that are basically saying they're not even going to start paying back their loans. I think it was, it was reported as being as high as 40% so that they just weren't going to pay them. Yeah, but interesting that that's an undercurrent to the otherwise positive news about the consumer. The consumer's resilient. The economy looks rather strong in Atlanta. GDP now has a pretty high forecast for GDP growth in this this quarter. But it's a really important point because the undercurrents and looking ahead don't make it look too good for the consumer. The other area and tying in with that is corporate profit growth has been negative. Now, you can look at S&P corporate profits, talked about a couple of swats ago, that corporate profits been trending negative since September of 22. So now we're going on one year. And it's not unusual to have three, four quarters of negative corporate profit growth. And that corporate profit numbers, one I'm talking about, is small, mid, and large companies, public and private. We got that number and at the end of right at the very end of August, and just tracking that tells you or gives you an indication. So you use this rather lagging data to give you an indication what the trend is. Again, said it before that you got to find the trough in corporate profits, and when you get there, that you could then increase that exposure to to equities, and so. We'll see it in a number of different ways when we're monitoring portfolios, monitoring the companies, looking at the trading and the fundamentals and the valuation. That, that will, we have a multitude of indicators that will tell us when this market's going to turn and we can add to equities. A couple of bullet points I want to make about opportunities. One is in options. Um, why it's an opportunity is because they're cheap again, and they're cheap at the end of July. Tracking these for you know, two and a half decades, you can say, you know, you can tell when option premiums, the cost of protection is cheap. We use options as a tool. And an example of that is periodically, like every couple of years, we might throw protection on portfolios. We can use them to protect positions for for high, highly concentrated positions in client portfolios that they or or elderly, they don't want to get out of stocks because they get a step up in basis, and yet you want to protect the positions. But whatever the case is, if you have this feeling that the market is going down or you're concerned, you don't have to sell stocks. You can use these as tools. And as cheap as they were recently in July, they they went up quite a bit. And into mid-August. Well, now with the market rallying, they become cheap again. So you got this other, another opportunity to put them in place if you get, if you get overly concerned about the market or you think you missed something that you could put protection in place on the cheap. That's all I wanted to say about options. I should let you talk, but I wanted to throw the 10-year treasury in there at 4.1. Basically, the 10-year yield is, is to me, is a, is a great opportunity to pick up yield. And everything. And when I say 10-year treasury, other bonds are benchmarked to the 10-year treasury. So you're getting higher yields on corporates and so forth. But it takes you in that direction that you can extend out duration, you can get the higher yields. You don't have to be overly concerned that yields are going to pop to 5 or 6% on a 10-year. In fact, the expectation would be that we saw a 10-year yield at 3.2 back in April, just last April. So it fell from 425 in October 22 to 3.2, back up to 420 in August. 
now down a little bit. If the Fed is expected to cut rates in 2024, it's not because the economy is going gangbusters. It's because they want to stimulate the economy and try to keep it from slowing down too much. But that's going to imply that the 10 years coming down, which is not unrealistic to expect it to go down to 3.2. So you want to maybe consider locking up longer term, even CD, five-year CDs or 10-year treasuries or something of that nature to take advantage of the higher yields. And it's what, not just yeah. nominal yields, it's it's the real yield. So oh, yeah. when you strip out inflation expectations over that 10-year period, we're 1.8, close to 2%. And put that in perspective, over the last decade, real yields were closer to 0%. So you're effectively being rewarded on a real basis. Your purchasing power is expected by the market to increase by making that allocation to the 10-year yield. Yeah, great point. And yeah. then when we speak about opportunities, we've brought this up multiple times, but with real yields having increased so much, and Todd, with the prospect that the Fed might have to re- reduce yields next year, gold has been remarkably resilient at about 1970. Last time real yields were at 1.8% was in October. Gold, you can think about the opportunity cost. Would you rather have an asset that is throwing off a real yield of 1.8% or an asset that you have to store and pay to store? So there's actually a negative carry in holding the position. I'm glad you're bringing that up. The last time that real yields were this high was October of last year, and gold was at 16.10. So the fact that you have the VIX relatively depressed and real yields elevated with gold still at 1970. To me, it speaks of an opportunity. There's something going on with respect to the undercurrents of the market that is valuing or pricing gold attractively right now. Yeah. And I, what I appreciate about that comment is that gold's resilience, the opportunity is when real yields go down. Because now you got an asset that doesn't pay a yield that is be- actually becoming more relatively attractive while real yields are falling. And we're not to that point yet. We'll probably have real yields in a range of 1.8 to 2.3. That's telling you something that you're, if you, you want to get ahead of the curve, there's an opportunity there. Because when real yields fall, then gold should rise. Dollars will get weaker because the dollar and the exchange rates in general are a function of real yields. The relative change in real yields between countries, not to mention real the change in economic growth and inflation. So you got that opportunity in gold. What about? Um, well, what about digital gold? Last week yeah. we had the the ruling out that increases the likelihood that Grayscale's Bitcoin trust is converted into an ETF, and a large overhang for institutional investors from allocating capital to Bitcoin has been the lack of a wrapper that favors the client. GBTC has a two percent fee on it. It doesn't trade at net asset value. Right now, I think the discount is 26%, and it has ranged as high as, I think, 1.7 times the underlying. So it's a terrible way to gain exposure. But if that shifts to an ETF, you almost get that George Soros concept of reflexivity, where you have a wall of money that can come into an, an asset class that's really priced at only $500 billion. If there's a front running, it could push the, the value higher. And then it incentivizes, once the ETF is actually formed, purchasers. Because, you know, this isn't really a commentary on whether Bitcoin is valid as a digital gold or as valuable as rocks, but it's trying to look at what investors might do. And if the price rises and the opportunity becomes available, it seems like a reflexive buy from my perspective. Right. I also wanted to talk about what we're seeing from a trading perspective. You you mentioned trading a, a bit earlier on small caps, but 
our senior traders, so Trevor Nargis has pointed out that uh, the number of stocks in the S&P 500 that are trading over the 200-day moving average has picked up. It's greater now than 55%. Ken Bellinger, another senior trader, he highlighted, he runs a, a screen. And one of the things that he looks for is companies that are making a positive MACD cross in negative territory on a daily basis. And he highlighted that it's it's really common now in the consumer discretionary, industrial, and material sectors. But he's also seen green shoots in the consumer staples right. and right. elsewhere. It's, right. it's, it's what he flagged as a very broad-based buying program that he's seen. Right. And that's one of my favorite indicators. There's an infinite number of technical indicators. But it, that MACD is a momentum indicator, and, and the attention is paid to it when it's positive, but the, the opportunity is when it's negative and turning positive. That's what Ken is picking up. Um, let's move on to threats real quick. One is the talk about resilience, is that oil prices have held their gains and actually risen as oil inventories are drawing down. We've seen that, and that that's tying into inf- the the threat of inflation reaccelerating here in the U.S. and in Europe. It's already uh, accelerated in Europe. What's your thoughts on that? Despite higher oil prices, so I want to say in 2014 or before the, the the great collapse in oil, drillers were just chomping at the bit for $80 oil. They were just rearing to go and deploying rigs. Now we see $80 oil and Drillers are taking rigs offline. They're not incentivized at all right now to drill. We're seeing the most prolific basin, the Permian, have rigs come out despite the fact that oil is at these levels. Moreover, if you look at well productivity across all of the basins, but specifically within the Permian, that's declining as well. And what's really interesting is that over the last decade, the United States has been responsible for producing on the margin 90% of the new supply of oil. And over the last five years, the Permian has by and large been the vast majority of that production. So the fact that we're seeing, you can't really predict what demand will be. That's very hard to predict. But what you can do is look at the supply. And when you see rigs getting pulled out, productivity declining, there's at least a real overhang with respect to the ability to bring additional supply on should growth surprise to the upside. And the resiliency that we're seeing in the commodity markets, that could be a threat then to the Federal Reserve. Because if we start to see a rollover in economic data, which they want to see, right? They want to see a a little bit of softer labor market because from their perspective, that will reduce inflationary pressures by reducing the prospect of a wage price spiral. But if you see energy prices moving higher while the economy moves lower, that puts them in a really sticky situation, I guess you would say. And it's a great example of a threat. Uh, And then we're heading into winter on top of it. The other threat is the threat of a government shutdown, which is a you know real possibility as we head into October. What's your thoughts on it? You 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 jokingly said it was an opportunity. I said it was an opportunity because uh, <laughs> I'm not sure I see a lot of return <laughs> on my tax dollars spent. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Let's go around the room. What's our headline strength? Government spending on infrastructure set to ramp. Headline weakness. Potential pain for consumers. Headline opportunity. Market looks like it's turning up. Time to get selective. And a headline threat rise in energy prices. Annex Wealth Management SWAT Podcast, Episode 67. Todd Voigt, Chief Investment Strategist. Thank you. Thanks, Danny. Jason Cooper, Research Analyst. Thank you. Thank you, Danny.
Annex Wealth Management, LLC, is a registered investment advisor. For more information about our firm, please visit AnnexWealth.com. The information in this podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is subject to change without notice. The opinions expressed are those of the participants and don't necessarily reflect on those of Annex Wealth Management, LLC. Information presented should not be construed as tax, legal, or investment advice or a recommendation or a solicitation for the sale of any product or strategy. Listeners are encouraged to seek advice from qualified professionals to determine whether any information presented may be suitable for their specific situation. Investments involve risk. Neither Annex Wealth Management, LLC, nor its podcast participants shall be liable for losses resulting from decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on this podcast.